Hey, New Life family, welcome to the weekly podcast. We want to take a moment to say thank you so much for listening. We hope this message encourages you and helps you in some way today move forward in your relationship with Christ and others. We pray God blesses you wherever you are today. Now enjoy the message. I grew up with a father as a pastor, as an evangelist. I believe him to be a, he was an apostle in my, in my book. He never carried that title, but now that I've grown and matured in the Lord, I can look back on his life and I can, I can clearly see the call of an apostle. So I grew up in a household that maybe differs from some of you in here where you're not used, you're not used to hearing language, uh, especially in the culture that we live in, especially in the church culture that we live in because of how church is now framed, at least in America, oftentimes some of the very important principles and very important things in the Word of God has, oh, how do I say this nicely? It, it, has, been, it has been set aside. It has been set down in the hopes of bigger and better. And one of those things that is, I believe, has been a detriment both to the body of Christ and just, just unchurched people in general because even when they come into the church, they don't hear this. And that is this. That is this. Because of our culture and because of how much emphasis our American culture has put on the grace of God, and don't get me wrong, God is abundantly gracious my life is a testimony of his graciousness. So I'm not trying to strip that characteristic from God, but it has been lopsided in the teaching in the modern American church because we have been so inundated with sermons and teachings about the grace of God. We as pastors and we as messengers of the gospel haven't done a very good job on the other part, and and that is this. And I can specifically remember my father preaching along these lines. And that is, God doesn't always have to deal with you. He is not required or bound by some made-up super spiritual law that says, I can live the way I want to live, and then when I get good and ready, I will come and give my life to you. That is an erroneous gospel that has been preached in the American church today. God is love, and his love goes after you. His love is high, and his love is deep, and his love is wide. There is no boundaries beyond his love, and his arm extends as far and as deep to the most, I'll use some old school language, the wretched of sinners in which I once was. But there is no scripture in the word of God that promises us time and time and time and time again that that anointing, that wooing, that drawing will be there. And because we haven't had sufficient, significant teaching and ministering of that characteristic of God, we have actually become self-centered in the gospel to think, I can do as I will, when I will, and then when I get good, 
good and ready, I'll come and or I'll find an altar to repent of and then I'll live my life when, when I feel like I've sowed my oats or when I feel like I've arrived at my destination or when I feel like I've achieved what I've longed for in my life. You must understand There was a generation of Christians that taught, no, you better hearken to the voice of the Lord when he is calling because you are not guaranteed there will be another calling. And we must remember some of these principles that we have laid down and forgotten about and thought, well, God is not preaching that message anymore. I tell you, he is still preaching that same message of repentance. And he is still carrying the anointing to draw people unto him. There are many times you can look through scriptures, through the specifically the four gospels, and see how Jesus ministered in the flesh when he was here on earth in the flesh. And there was many times in, in, in many ways where he would go back to Jerusalem and minister. He would go back to a certain city and he would minister. He would go back to his hometown of Nazareth and he would minister. And his heart would be grieved because they would brush it off and brush it off. And yet, at the same time, there would be other places that he only stepped in foot one time. What would have happened to the demoniac? the man filled with perversion and devils to the place that he was cutting himself, ripping off his clothes. People could not contain him. What would have happened had he not yielded to the presence and the anointing of God when Jesus stepped out of the boat and the the Son of God came into his vicinity? What would have happened? Had he not yielded that time? Because we are never told that Jesus ever went back to that place. He went one time with one mission. I'm going to step my foot on the evil part of the land where the enemy has had his way where the enemy has set up false idols and false gods and people have thought, oh, I'll just get some pigs and I'll make my money off pigs. If you're not following along with me, I I, I apologize because I'm just preaching out of just my spirit, what I feel the spirit is, rather than reading you the text. I'm not reading it, but I'm ministering what is in the Bible. What would have happened had he said, no, my perversion, I love it more. What would he have happened if the Son of God, when the Son of God stepped out of that boat and stepped into the middle of darkness and perversion and sin where it was okay that a naked man was running around with chains, where they were okay with people cutting themselves and offering up their blood to a false god. It was actually okay for them to have things that the Lord God said specifically, do not participate in this. What would have happened? Because Jesus only went there one time. In our culture today, we would have said, Jesus, I'll catch you at the next convention. I'll catch you at the next youth camp. I'll catch you at the next Sunday service. I'll catch you at the next revival. I'm not ready to give up these devils yet. I'm not ready to put on all my clothes yet. I'm not ready to give up perversion yet. I'm not ready to, I know about it here, but I'm not ready here. And I'll wait for the next boat, Jesus. 
That man would have died and split hell wide open. You know why? Because it says Jesus went there one time. He gets in the boat and he goes back and he sees Jerusalem. He sees Nazareth, a place where he has went a plethora of times. A place where he taught in the synagogues and preached in the temple steps. And I want you to hear the difference. There's one specific time in the book of Luke where it says, and he comes into the temple. It's one of three in the Bible where Jesus, out of all the miracles that Jesus did, I'm talking about supernatural miracles, verified supernatural miracles, out of all of the ones, and there was a million of them because the author of the book of John, John himself, the revelator, says this at the very beginning. Had we all written down the exploits and miracles and signs and wonders that the Son of God did while he was on this earth, the books of the world could not contain them if we even sat down to try to do that. So you're talking about thousands and thousands and millions probably of just little incidences that happened all day long, every day, night morning, noon. And out of all of that, there's only three recorded where Jesus goes into the synagogue or into the temple and he performs a miracle. And one of them is this. One of them is when he heals the lady that is called the daughter of Abraham that she's been over for 18 years and he heals her. And you know what the church folks did? They got so used to her being bent over, they actually got indignant because he broke protocol. You know what that means? He broke the scheduled form of service. You weren't scheduled to do that, Jesus. It wasn't time for you to preach yet, Jesus. We're still in the middle of taking up the tithe and the offering. That was one of the times. The other time is he comes in and it says that there's a man with a withered hand. And they get indignant again. And Jesus said, you hypocrites, because if one of your goats or sheep would fall into a well, you would you not go get it out? How much more do you want this man to be walking with a withered hand when you would rather save an animal than save your brother who is here worshiping? That was the second time. The third time, and this is the one that blows me away every time I read it, every time I think about it is Jesus comes back into the temple and he is preaching. And because he is preaching repentance, because that's the only thing Jesus preached on, he preached on repentance and through repentance he showed them the kingdom of God. He said, I want to show you the kingdom of God, but I can't show you that yet because you first must hear this, repent. If you repent, then I'm going to show you the kingdom of God. And as he's preaching repentance and the kingdom of God, it says, on, and I'm just filling in my words a little bit, it says on the back row, a man jumps up. He's in the temple. They've allowed him in the temple. And it says he is full of the devil. I want you to read your scriptures. It didn't say they escorted him out. They knew who he was. They accepted who he was. Probably because the spirits they carried was second cousins to the ones he carried. Because sometimes I'll put up with stuff that's family related. You know, we don't choose our family. And so sometimes we'll put up with family stuff. 
But if Sabrina comes to me, she's not blood related. I'm like, no, girl, I got too many of them crazies in my family. You cannot be crazy too. Straighten up. I'm just playing, but you know. You are in my line of eyesight right there. So they accepted him. He was a part. And they were flabbergasted as Jesus is preaching. And he starts causing a ruckus. And Jesus says, hush, come out of him by the power of the name of God most holy. He is delivered from the demons right there sitting in the church. And it's the third scripture or third account of Jesus preaching. And a miracle happens under the sanctuary He gets delivered, but the other church people don't. I want you to hear that. The power of deliverance was there, and he was a sign and a wonder that deliverance was happening, that demon possession was being rebuked and called out and cast out, and they got indignant again. It's one of the reasons why later on in Scripture, right before the cross of Calvary, He's sitting on a donkey. He's looking over the cliff, if you will, of Jerusalem because as, as he sees just the lights, and he says, Jerusalem, I come to you many times to preach to you, and you pushed me away. You did not want the kingdom of God. You wanted your religiosity. You know what that means in our terminology? You wanted the set schedule that you made up. You wanted the gospel you made up. I come to bring you the gospel, and you wanted the gospel you made up in your own mind. And it broke his heart because he went to other places, preached the same thing, and people without a hardened heart would respond with weeping, with hosannas, with saying, God, deliverance, God, heal me, Jesus, touch me. All these attributes would come. And yet he would come back into the place where he should have been accepted. He should have been welcomed. People should have been just laying everything down because this is their Messiah whom they were crying out for. I said all that to say this. We in America have come likened unto that generation. We have come likened unto that generation. And we think God is going to always deal with us. That God is always going to be there to deliver us. And listen, I pray to God it is true. I pray mercy that it is true. But there comes a time when God does draw a line. And he says, I will not deal with you no more. You know what, you know what, they, what the scripture, how the scripture says? God will say, I have probed you. I have prodded you. I've even... I've even allowed you to go through what we would say tribulation, not the tribulation, but turmoil, just kind of like thorns, if you will, just poking and prodding, trying to get you. I'm going to go over here and the Holy Ghost will put like just a little, oh, and you're like, oh. What it does is it sends you back this way. And then you're like, no, I'm not choosing that because, you know, I know what that involves. That, that involves holiness, and that involves consecration. And so we come over here, and the Holy Ghost, no, you don't. You know what? Because we got praying mamas and praying grandmas. 
Thank God for a praying generation. Thank God that there's people in this house. And there's like, listen, I'm, I'm not looking at their foolishness. And a Holy Ghost will just do that. Oh, you're like this. And you come back over here. And you kind of sense the presence of God. You come back over here. And the Holy Ghost will do that. He will try to maneuver you in a way so that you can experience and have opportunity to experience the grace and mercies of God. But out of rejection and out of, dare I say, high-handedness to the Lord, the Lord will say, fine, if this is what you want, I will allow you to have your desire. I'm going to share with you something the Lord has brought back to my mind, and then I'm going to share, you, share with you and remind you of the word that the Lord spoke through tongues and interpretations last week because it falls in line with where I believe the Spirit is speaking right now. I'm going to share with this this story. Like I said, if you don't know anything too much about me, that my father was a minister, and there was a huge chunk of time, two different chunks of time in my life where I traveled with him, and we went all over. We had a camper, had an RV, and we pulled in. Night after night, we was in service in some state, in some church, uh, and we did that. One time, we did that for three years straight. One time, we did that for almost five years straight, and that's when I called Tim, and I said, Tim, you got to me because I'm tired of living in a trailer. <laughs> And so he said, fine, and he asked me to marry him, and so that's how that ended up. <laughs> I had to break, I had, y'all were getting a little somber on me. So, you know, he kind of es- escaped me out of that. But in doing that, I was just inundated with the presence of God, with how God used my father and I remember specific testimonies that God would give, both of his life and, and other ter- testimonies that he would share because the Lord used him mightily. He wasn't a perfect man, and there was times I really did want to strangle him as a dad, but I always respected him as a prophet of God and a man of God. And God used him in crazy, crazy ways. Like, I could share with you hundreds of stories of how God used them. One specific, and this is when he, uh, I, I was not around when this happened, but I, because I was with him every night hearing different stories and hearing accounts, this has been embedded into my memory through his testimony. And when God very first started using him when he was a young minister, he was up in the city of Council Bluffs, which is in Iowa, and he had been invited to preach under a tent. That was back in the days when they would just throw up a tent and they would say, let's just see what God will do here. And so they would preach and people would come and sit under the tent on the outskirts of the tent and he would just minister. Him and my uncle would kind of tag team minister. And there was this one specific time that there was these two young ladies. Everybody in town knew them. They, was, they, had, they, they were uh, popular kind of just because they were well-known, well-liked and all of this. They were friends. And they would come night after night. And I remember my father saying they would come. And the first night that they they would sit like just right in front of their cars. And then the next night they moved in a little bit. But he could tell uh, because they they would put um, like them hanging lantern type things out so that they, you know, you could see. 
and, and he could tell that the Holy Ghost was ministering to him. And so he would just pray and he would, of course, you know, give an invitation for, for an altar call and they just never would respond. And, but each night they got closer and closer until the second to the last night, they actually was what we would call on the back row. They had folding chairs set up and that's where they were sitting. God was ministering, God was ministering, God was ministering. And my father felt this, just this unction of the Holy Ghost come upon him, kind of what we've been talking about. There is a line being drawn. You either choose me now or you cannot ever choose me. And they had made a pact that they would, neither one of them would allow the other to go to the altar. If I start to go to the altar, if I start to respond, because they knew about church. They weren't unchurched people. They just weren't living for the Lord. So they understood who God was. And they were sitting and they had made a pact. If I start to go to the altar, you reach down and grab me. And they just made that pact. They were that close of friends. And it came to the point, and my, my father was given the altar call. And he said, I could see them. They were shaking. The power of God was on both of them young ladies to the degree that they were shaking. They couldn't control the power of God. And they were just sitting there, and the seat, the little folding chair in front of them was rattling because they were just gripping it. They were just white-knuckling it so tight. And the one girl finally just said, I cannot take it no more. And she gets up, and the other girl says, no, tries to pull her down. No, we made a pact. We was not going to give in to this. And she's like, I'm sorry. I love you as a friend. This is not me walking away from you. This is me walking unto him. And she made her way up. This is sawdust, dirt, you know, because you're outside in a tent. She's weeping. God reaches down, touches her life, saves her, fills her with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Amazing things were just happening in that moment. Was restoring her, healing her soul. She had been abused. And God was touching those abused, uh, wounded areas in her soul and just all kinds of things. The other young lady never came up. They sent a, a lady back there, a minister lady, and she's like, no. And she got up and walked out. That was the second to the last night. The last night came. This young lady comes. She's sitting on the front row. Now she's different. She's changed. The joy of the Lord has and taken her over, and she is just beaming. As the night goes on and, and the service goes on, the other young lady comes, sits in the exact same spot. She had made up in her mind, if her friend is going to do it, I will do it. I will make the altar call. I will go up. My father preached, same anointing, same fire, same repentance, same altar. Everybody's shouting. Everybody is responding. Every, there's people getting healed. This young lady gets up walks down to the altar and says, God, I will serve you. And my dad said it was dead as a doornail. There was no moving. He's like, I wanted to go over and wrap my arms around her. I wanted to bring my wife off of the piano and pull her down there and pray her through. And the Lord said, don't touch her. What happened? She thought she could do as she willed in her own time. And God spoke and said, Unless you choose tonight, you can never choose me. At some point, my father moved. They, we all ended up moving away. And at some point came back, ran into the lady who give 
her life to God, was still serving the Lord, her and her now husband, family, kids, all going, working for the Lord, everything. He said, what about your friend? Named her by name. What about your friend? Oh, she died of a drug overdose. Two years later, because she couldn't take it, she felt so hollow. She was taking everything into her, trying to fill the void of what she felt on that night that she thought she could fill. And after two years, her mind just basically went, for a lack of, Lacey, you can give me a better term later, but she just went crazy. She just went crazy. Her mind drove her nuts trying to fill that void with alcohol, with drugs. I'm telling you, the girl, as much as it pains to say it, unless God had mercy on her soul, split hell wide open. Not everybody is going to go to heaven. I know we try to preach that. And I know we try to say God in his vast graceness, which is so true. And God in his vast anointing and love and mercy, which is so true. But there's also a time that God will say, I'm going to give you what you're asking me to give you. You don't know what you're asking me to give you, but I'm going to give you that. Lacey was even saying, I feel like there's a crossing over. There's a crossing over. This is what the Lord spoke last week through a tongue and interpretation of tongue. And I tried to write it almost verbatim. And Tommy's very good at remembering, and so he might be able to help me just a bit with this. But the word of the Lord to this specific company was this. How long will you, new life, stand afar off? How long will you be aloof when I've invited you into my presence and closer to me? You wait for a sign and a wonder, but if you will enter into my presence, I, through my presence, will make you to be the sign and wonder to others that they may enter in also. That was the gist of it. And I got up after we was all responding to the altar and we was responding to the Lord and probably 20 minutes go by, maybe 30 minutes. And I told the, everybody last week, I said, I, I'm just going to be real. I didn't know what the word aloof meant. I, I honestly, I, I don't think I've ever used that word. And I was Googling the definition. And in part, the definition meant to be conspicuous, right? Okay, to be conspicuous. We don't really use that word a lot, but we do use the word inconspicuous a lot. The word inconspicuous means that I'm just trying to blend in. I'm not trying to be noticed. I'm trying to, in other words, I'm trying to stand, stand to a place where I can hide a bit. I, I, I'm, ju- I'm being inconspicuous. I'm doing stuff, but I don't really want you to know I'm doing it, and so, therefore, I'm trying to veil it. That's what the word inconspicuous means. But the definition of aloof means to be conspicuous, 
means you're not hiding no longer. It really is a high-handed attitude. It means I am calloused and I don't care that you know I'm calloused. It even means to gain a distaste for something. To be aloof means, means I used to have a taste for it and desired it, but now I've had it so long that it has numbed me and now I have a distaste for it. And God, through the Holy Spirit, was saying, how long will you be aloof? In other words, how long am I going to give you bread from heaven that you eat of? And and I'm speaking spiritually here, that you partake of, but it has become so common to you. One of the things, the points that I was going to bring up today, and I'm going to just keep you for just a few more moments. One of the points I was going to bring up to you today is about tearing down altars that when Israel went and possessed the land of Canaan, they didn't go in there and it just be there. They had to fight against the enemies. And each time they fought, the Lord spoke to them and said, you must tear down their gods. You must tear down their altars. And so each time, and and there were seven specific Uh, groups of people that they had to fight against in the natural with with armed forces, with with an army. And so as they would raise the glory of the Lord through the Ark of the Covenant up, they would go in with a shout, with a trumpet, with a ram's horn, and they would go in with a sound, and their sound would confuse the enemy. And the enemy would begin to turn on them. Their enemy in their own strength had the power and the authority to overtake them because these are people who are coming out of Egypt and been wandering in the They weren't soldiers. They didn't have weaponry, but they only had a word of the Lord. And God said, if you lift me up, I will scatter your enemies. And so as they lift up the glory of God, they would go in. The sound that was coming out of them would confuse the enemy. To the point that the enemy would begin to turn on them. And then in that confusion and in that chaos, God's people would triumph in victory. And they would possess that particular boundary or that particular land. And each one represented a certain uh, idol, if you will. A certain, I'll say, devil, if you will. A certain false god. And as they went in, God was very specific. He said, "Don't don't you compromise with them. You tear down them altars. You tear down those statues. You tear down those things. Don't uh, compromise to them. Don't even leave them standing because if your eye sees them day after day, eventually you're going to get curious about it. Eventually your heart is going to be pulled toward. So when you go in and there's no attachment and there's no uh, connection while I am in your midst, you start tearing that down by my name. There were seven specific ones. And so I was going to give you seven specific altars that I believe that we need to contend for and tear down in our day. One of them I don't have time to go into all of it because of the time. But one of them was both Rebellion and pride. It, that's basically what it re- represented. I'm trying to give it to you the easy way without describing it all. But it would represent rebellion and pride, and they had to tear it down. 
Why, why did they have to tear it down? Because the Lord understood their heart was bent to be easily deceived through rebellion and pride. Does that make sense? Because God knew them. They were chosen of God. Understand this. God could have chosen anybody. And he chose the Jewish people. He chose those Hebrew people. And he understood that their heart was conditioned or their heart was bent towards any little thing. Rebellion would come up and pride would come up. And their heart would would just give to it. And they would go through this cycle of in and out and in and out of, of obedience and disobedience. So when they went into this one specific place, God says, you tear down that altar that represents rebellion and pride. Because he understood where their heart was. What, what was it that he understood? He understood this, that when he brought them out of Egypt, he said, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to provide for you. And it says every single day, manna came down from heaven, which, is a, which was a natural, supernatural bread. And when I say it that way, means it was actual things that they could put in their mouth, likened under bread, that fed them and nourished them. And every single day, they went out and they picked up this manna, this bread that they would make, and it said, and if you dig into that word manna, you can under, you could literally translate it to mean angels' food. It was supernatural bread. It was something that God, in His righteousness and His superiority, said, "I am going to share what the kingdom of heaven." sustenance is. I'm going to rain it down on you and it's going to fill your belly and it's going to provide supernatural sustenance to your body. And after a few days of that, after a few weeks of that, you know what they said? They said, God, we don't want this anymore. We want quail. Hear what I'm saying. Manna from heaven, angels' bread, supernatural power, just an abundance of God. They never ran out. And they tasted it so long that they said, God, we are tired of this, and you must give us quail. Let me put it to you this way because I feel like it's going over some of your heads. God said, I'm willing and able and want to give you this manna from heaven, but you would rather have flesh in your mouth. I want to pull you up to the table of heaven where you eat of what angels partake of, but your desire is for flesh in your mouth. And not just flesh, dead flesh. Because when God brought them quail, they were dead quail. What did he do? He gave them what they wanted. And as they ate of it, it satisfied them for a moment. Holy Spirit. In our culture... In America, we have become accustomed to having an altar unto the Lord that we visit often, that we visit at will. 
that we visit really whenever we can't take it no more. Oh, God, I just can't take it no more. And we visit it. And there's nothing wrong with that. But in the American culture, when we have that, we have also allowed this altar to stay in place, which represents rebellion, which represents anti-God, which represents poverty mentality, which represents just every kind of evil that you could possibly imagine and dream of because we haven't torn this altar down and we've made it equal to the altar of God. I'll come to this altar when I can't take it anymore. But then when I get up from this altar because I haven't torn this altar down, I don't mind visiting this. Tanner, put up that, put up the one slide, and I think it's the very first slide with words that's not a scripture. Put that up there. Is it this one? Nope, the next one then. What altar you want to tear down in the world, you'll ultimately worship at. Whatever altar you won't tear down, you will ultimately worship at. Oh, Pastor Mika, you're just being, you're just, you was raised old school. You're just, it's, it's okay. You don't have to do all that. I'm telling you, whatever, I'm telling you from experience. I'm telling you from 20 years of pastoring. I'm telling you from what I've seen and what I've been a part of. I'm telling you from a myriad of experiences that what I'm speaking to be true. Whatever altar you will not tear down, you will ultimately worship at. Oh, Pastor Mika, I would never worship at that altar. You will if you don't tear it down. Pastor Mika, you don't know. My heart isn't, your heart isn't that today. But you have an enemy. And all he wants is he don't need your yes now. He just needs you to leave things. He don't care if you worship at this altar. Just don't mess with his altar. Because if you leave his altar, then he don't need you to do it. Because he understands as, as, as I'm playing the long game, eventually, eventually, your carnal man, eventually, your carnal attitude, eventually, your carnal thought will bow its knee to this altar. Lacey, come. Whatever altar you won't tear down. But Pastor Mika, I... I it's okay for me to dabble in this. It's not going to hurt me. It may not hurt you today. It may not hurt you tomorrow. But whatever altar you don't tear down, you're going to end up worshiping at. Well, Pastor Mika, I think you're just being a little bit overcautious. No, I know what I have experienced in my life. I know the dreams that God gives me. And I have had dreams long enough now to pay attention when God gives dreams. Many of my dreams I never share with anybody outside of maybe Tim and one other person. But he gives that for the purpose 
of intercession. And I know we've prayed, and I know we've had altar service, and I know God has moved. And I don't, my intention, my intention is not to keep you long. But just following the footsteps of my father, I have to tell you, the rejection of God and the non-tearing down of altars means that you have become accustomed to equal altars. And when Jesus come on the scene, he started flipping those kinds of altars over. He started preaching about repentance. I never want to use feelings and I never want to use stories that pull on you emotionally because I don't think we need all that. We just need the anointing of God. The anointing destroys the yokes, Scripture says. You cast the net from the gospel and people respond willingly or they don't respond willingly. And then you just pray that God grants them another opportunity. So Holy Spirit, I thank you for your, your moving. I thank you for your scripture. I thank you for your revelation.